Hi, everyone. Um, welcome to the second episode of the Not Investing Advice podcast. Um, all right. So then in this episode, Max and I are going to talk about, we were planning to talk about the upcoming merge. And then if we have time, we'll be talking about um, flash loans um, and perhaps a bit about AMMs. Um, so yeah, I guess let's just jump in. Um, so this is a topic I know very little about, and Max knows a lot about, like many topics. So um, I'm going to be playing the role of asking a bunch of dumb questions, and Max is going to tell you everything about it. So yeah, I guess let's talk about the merge next. Yeah, so the merge, um, for those people who are listening who, who are not as familiar, is Ethereum is moving from proof of work, which is the system where a bunch of miners produce blocks, which is very uh, computationally intensive, uh, to more eco-friendly proof-of-stake model. And uh, this is all well and good. It seems to be that the tests are going pretty well, although there have been a few hiccups um, in some of the test nets that have merged so far. Uh, but I think the big controversy started to come up as people realized this was actually going to happen. People started to think about the fact that Ethereum is already under heavy load for real uh, financial use cases, especially stable coins. And so somebody uh, threatened to basically, or has announced that he's going to be continuing the, the proof of work version of Ethereum, okay, at the time of the merge. And so there's going to be two chains, one of which is proof of work, one of which is proof of stake. And there's going to be, for each USDC that's currently on the proof of work version, there's going to end up being a version of the proof of stake version and one of the proof of work version. So there was a long time ago, there was a fork Ethereum classic, which we can talk about later, but at that time there wasn't as much economic activity. There wasn't as much, there wasn't a hundred billion dollars of stable coins sitting on the network that are at risk of double spend. So, yeah. So I guess uh, a couple of questions about a couple of things. So the merge is scheduled. Did Vitalik say like what the timeline is? What's the schedule for like the final merge? I think it's uh, it's supposed to be like end of August. Wow, really soon. So, so we have like a month going into soon. it. I see. Yeah. Yeah. The mechanics of the thing, I kind of had, I have like a basic understanding. I don't think I understand it super well, right? So I guess the idea is that Ethereum is like all blockchains are kind of a protocol, like a kind of system for miners all agree that we're going to take like the longest proof of work chain, right? The longest chain of valid blocks with valid kind of mined um, solutions, right? And then that's kind of, we agree that's the consensus version of Ethereum, right? So mechanically, I guess, how does the merge work? And I guess what I mean by that is mechanically, if Vitalik says now we're going to stop using um, proof of work, to determine Ethereum. We're gonna stop at this block and from this block onwards, the consensus algorithm changes. Like, I guess, who decides that? Is it basically like the hope is that all of the miners or all of the current miners are just gonna say, all right, now we're gonna do, um, now we're just gonna use like proof of stake to construct the chain instead of proof of work. Is that how that works or how does that work? Yeah. Yeah, so to, to kind of address this, problem of having a, a proof of stake and a proof of work version. There's this thing called the difficulty bomb. And so each block that gets added to the Ethereum blockchain that gets mined, um, the total difficulty goes up. So this total difficulty number is monotonically increasing as blocks get added to the chain. And there's a threshold at which the um, 
Beacon Chain, which is running the uh, proof of stake system, is going to take over. And the difficulty oh. bomb is going to come into place so that uh, mining new blocks becomes in incredibly hard. So the hope is that the beacon chain will take over and make the length of the chain much longer than the miners can do because the miners will be com uh, competing with this difficulty bomb. Oh, I see. So the idea is that we're going to change the parameter, which is how hard a problem you have to solve to make a new block, right? And the thing is, you make it functionally impossible to add new blocks through proof of work, right? And then so the only way, that, that way, like, the stake chain is going to grow longer than the work chain, right? Yeah, maybe That's it's worth it to yeah. just discuss, like, what that problem is a little bit. So there's this thing called a hash function, which takes a string of arbitrary length. So it could be, like, your name, my name. It could be all the transaction data in a block. And it uh, takes that arbitrary length string and maps it onto a fixed length, uh, 256 bits, or however many bits. But for the purpose of Ethereum and Bitcoin, it's 256 bits. So the entries in that are just bits, okay? And the mining difficulty is the number of leading zeros in that hash that have to be present. So uh, the thing about hash functions is that we have no way to kind of manipulate them to get them to be uh, certain numbers, basically just drawing randomly. So if you want 16 leading zeros in binary, that's two to the 16th difficulty. So that's kind of the way that it works. And the difficulty bomb just spikes that difficulty, basically. I see, I see. Yeah. So I guess like one thing I was uh, a bit confused about, how is it that Vitalik and Co can just change the difficulty? Like that system parameter, how is it that they can just control that? Yeah. Right. And this is one of the problems is that the only reason that the, so the difficulty is basically decided by what the network says it is, right? I see. Yeah. So it's um, the same way, like, we don't even know what the true Ethereum blockchain is other than that everybody says it's the longest chain. Right, right yeah. So yeah. that's the same kind of thing. It's just what the validators have um, decided on. So the validators have to kind of come to consensus on difficulty, right? Right, right. In a sense, yeah. And how this do they is... currently, how do they current? Because I remember in Bitcoin, right? Um, I never totally understood how this worked, but the idea is the difficulty is kind of auto-adjusted, so block time is roughly fixed. Is that like roughly how that works? I right. So each, also, is that right? Yeah. Each validator has uh, its own instruction booklet that tells it the rules of the game or basically the strategy that's going to yeah, follow, yeah. and that's like written in code. And and people don't usually write their own; usually they just grab it from the internet, right? Yeah, yeah. And so. Like basically, they they updated the code that the, the Ethereum core team maintains. Um, one of the major oh, I see, because Ethereum core team maintains the code the validators use as the core set of rules, right? So there's a, I guess there's a a degree of centralization, which is to the extent that the validators kind of simply what they do is just like download whatever Ethereum core team sends as an update and just run that code, right? To the extent that they do that, I guess Ethereum core team can just like 
ship new code that says we're going to difficulty bomb starting from this block. Is that kind of how that works? Yeah, basically. And and there are multiple teams that are working on different versions, so that there is some decentralization. But, I see. Uh, there aren't that many, and so yeah. they all got together and decided. Yeah, I feel like everyone like talks about the like decentralization kind of philosophically and everything of mining and whatever. But it's like the idea that basically sort of the implicit centralization from like everyone is downloading the validator client or whatever from like three sources. And I guess some of them might not think very hard when they download the thing. Like that's a an interesting degree of centralization, normally decentralized kind of system, right? Yeah. Right, and I think another related thing to this, um, maybe we should just talk about it now, is so once yeah. the um, once the Bellatrix hard fork happens, which is like kind of the beacon chain getting ready to take on the load uh, and move to proof of stake, uh, it's going to be um, so it's supposed to be super decentralized who's running these nodes. But in fact, Lido, yeah. which is a liquid staking derivative version of ETH staking, has a large portion of the staked ETH. So they have actually a large share of the number of validators. And there was a governance proposal to limit that. So that basically, um, Lido would voluntarily limit themselves to not be too large of a share of the pool of validators, and they did not do that. They actually, the governance proposal failed. So they can now be, yeah. you know, an arbitrary portion of the pool because that liquid staking is so nice for stakers oh. and they don't have to maintain their own node. That's um, actually very attractive. So that's another oh. portion of the centralization risk from Lido. I see. So, so I had a couple of questions actually, uh, like still about the mechanics of the merge. Um, and I think those questions for me helped me understand like, what an attack or what a fork would look like. So I guess like, would an attack or would a attempt to fork, right? Would it kind of look like someone else saying, we don't like what Vitalik is doing, shipping a new sort of set of instructions to validators and basically saying to validators, if you like our version, download our version and use our set of rules. Would that be how that kind of looks like? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Um, I see. And they wouldn't have to and make then I, much I, change, right? They would just have to- I see. So like they basically all. say, we're going to just like fix this version, this is the old version. We don't like the tell exchange. So we're going to keep running the old version and not have the difficulty bomb and the merge into beacon, I guess. Yeah. Right. Right. And I guess like, so, and then what happens, I guess like the, like what a fork really means, right? It's a point at which I guess like two blockchains, uh, like a blockchain splits into two things following sufficiently different rules that each of them are not valid blockchains from the perspectives of the other set of rules. Is that kind of a reasonable way to understand what a, what a fork is? Yeah. So for example, uh, Ethereum Classic, which is a version of Ethereum that is, uh, you know, that forked a long time ago. Well, actually, yeah, yeah, Ethereum yeah. forked from Ethereum Classic because there was this big DAO that got created and there was a hack on that DAO, actually an exploit in the code. And it was, it ended up being a large portion of the Ethereum in the existence that got stolen at the time. So a bunch of people got together and they said, let's uh, go back in time and start the blockchain off before this happened, before everybody deposited. So they basically rerun time and they started building a new blockchain off that, that uh, you know, point in time. And 
the Ethereum Classic blockchain is just like, let's just keep going, you know, let's just keep following the rules. Uh, and so all the validators that didn't update their clients to uh, invalidate the blocks that have been mined uh, stayed on Ethereum Classic and everybody did update went see, to Ethereum. And that's, I think, what's going to happen is people are going to, I mean, the miners are going to have nothing to do with their GPUs, right? Why, why not? <laughs> why not just yeah, use yeah, a yeah. bomb and just keep mining? Um, and see how, I see. how it does, right? I see, I see. Yeah, so I guess as you say, like, who are the kind of the interested parties here? And I guess we talked about some of them. We have kind of um, Vitalik and Co. who want um, to push to proof of stake. Um, we have the validators and the, the validators who I guess, like, they ultimately sort of can side with one or the other. We have miners who I guess have a strong incentive to be on a proof of work chain because in stake, I guess their hardware isn't worth much, right? Mm -hmm. And I guess like the power brokers are kind of, it's kind of interesting because I guess like all of the protocols, um, which are entirely on chain, those guys, their best move, it seems to be, is just like run Uniswap in parallel on both versions, I guess, right? Because they don't really have to make a decision there. Uniswap kind of keeps running anyway, is that right? Well, in some sense, they're like the ones that are deployed are deployed and they're going to be on both yeah, chains, yeah. right? So, um, right. What can you do? But the I question is, what you... are the assets oh, sorry, worth, yeah. right? What is what is yeah, the yeah, swap yeah. token on ETH proof of work going to look like, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's the real. It's like literally thing. every ERC twenty splits into two. Right. Yeah, that's <laughs> yeah, kind really of a crazy. Kind of event. Yeah. I, I think we've seen it yeah. before because we had you know Bitcoin Cash or I don't know if that's one of yeah. the forks, but tons of Bitcoin forks have happened. ETH Classic has happened, and we've seen those tokens split yeah. into two. But we've never had this scale of ever, like many, many of the top 100 coins are exclusively on ETH and they're going to split into two. And that's going to be weird. Right. Right. I guess it's, it's as you say, like the core problem is with coins that have value because they reference something in the real world. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And I guess stable coins are the big example of that. It's like if you have two of a thing and only one dollar, only one of them can, by definition, be worth uh, anything. Yeah. Yeah, and I think it extends to all the government tokens. Sorry, right? yeah. I mean, it's, it extends to all the government tokens because now, how do we know which DAO is valid—the one that's controlled by the people on the proof of stake version or the people on the proof of work version? Yeah, I was thinking about that also. That's kind of interesting because you could also think of it as like every DAO then, in a sense, splits into two, right? Mm -hmm. Like in principle, from a protocol, I guess, like sort of that's an interesting analogy because like the same way like a stable coin is valuable because is it references an asset a physical dollar in the world right i guess like governance tokens at some level are valuable not only because they control protocol level decisions but because they sort of interface with sort of DAOs, which are which exist in the real world sets of people in the real world right so i guess like that's an interesting kind of perspective that like other players in this space are like Every human set of people making decisions linked to governance tokens gets a say in this race. They get a say in the sense that they can like go out and announce we're going to view this set of tokens as official and not this set of tokens. And like they can like take sides in a meaningful way in this debate, I guess. Right. Yeah. yeah. And I think here's the thing. I think most everybody is going to be like, OK, we're going to go to proof of stake. Everybody's been waiting for this. Yeah, everybody yeah. wants this. It's more efficient. Yeah. Right? Yeah. and everybody's yeah. can we actually talk through an example of the dao thing be just uh for me to understand say we have like i don't know what what's your favorite example what's a good example of a dao to talk about here um i mean uniswap maybe yeah let's take uniswap yeah and so uniswap i guess like uh they have 
um, sort of proposals, and then um, tokens are going to vote on whether a proposal passes or not, right? In principle, if there were no human factor, I guess what I'm thinking is you could have the proof of stake Uniswap tokens vote on what proof of what direction proof of stake Uniswap goes in, and then you could have the proof of um, work Ethereum Uniswap vote on what direction proof of. So in principle, you can just like split into two Uniswap DAOs, right? Like if you just like rename one of them, in principle, that could happen, I guess. Well, I think here's a bit of an issue, right? Um, I think that Uniswap, uh, the the token holders may have actually like IP rights over the the code in V3. I don't know that for sure, but it, mm. but if that happens, well then. Who who has control? Like who? Like oh, I see. Because there's one set of code. Yeah. <laughs> and the thing is that sort of you've just split. This is actually kind of insane, and it, it I guess points to like a very interesting set of legal issues around if this happens in the future, right? Because like sort of if we have like music NFTs, art NFT stuff like that. I mean, actually, this is actually a super interesting thing. Now we have two of every board. Yeah. Yeah. I had never thought of that. That is an amazing thing, right? Literally every board ape now has two versions, and you could legitimately have people say, "I own the board apes on like the proof of work chain, and therefore I can use this as my PFP." Twitter now has a horse in this race because Twitter gets to determine whether or which it recognizes as like legitimate, right? Yeah, I think there's a surprising number of parties then that are affected by this. I think it I'm was... gonna have two miladies instead of one now. <laughs> Yeah, at, at the risk of you know pissing off God, the yeah. talent or the people on the court team, I think it was a little bit rash to do this. Like, why didn't we just make a new chain? You know, everybody can deploy in two seconds. It takes two seconds to deploy. Like, why did we decide to but you take the biggest state, blockchain? Right? And why? Why not just start a new one? And then everybody can deploy what they but want. But I guess to. like the whole. I I feel like the my view is the only reason Bitcoin still exists is because of the value of state and network effects, right? I mean, I feel like sort of, I, I mean, I, I, I totally feel like you, like the likelihood that you succeed with a new proof of stake chain, I think, um, with nothing on it, I think, even if you have the street cred of Vitalik and the core team, right? I see that as like, you really need the network effect. So I think that sort of, I, I guess it makes sense to me, the decision of starting with ETH, sort of building on ETH and sort of having the legitimacy of being the guys who built this thing in the first place, saying this is the natural evolution. It's a bold move. I mean, sort of, if you had to bet, right, um, like even odds on what would happen to this in like a year, who's going to win? I mean, like, do you think they're going to lose? The problem, so I, I, I know, I almost certain that the proof of stake chain is going to be the predominant chain but that's not the issue that i'm worried about i'm i'm kind of worried about the tail risk i'm worried about um people not updating a bunch of service providers need to update everything right right it's kind of like a y2k event right like i don't know yeah it seems like i agree i hadn't realized it was so soon no i agree and it's like it's a thing everyone like Literally everyone in the ecosystem is affected by this, and everyone has like a month's notice to figure out what the hell is going on. Which is kind of yeah, yeah, I hope that that date is right. I mean, they, the thing well, is... Well, not a month's notice. I mean, it's been going on, but it feels like it entered into the public consciousness, like, quite sort of suddenly before it's actually going to happen. Yeah, yeah, people are going to say I got the date wrong, but, like, they put put out every <laughs> yeah, every yeah. single date this year has been 
proposed as a date for launch. So right, 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 right. Give yeah, me, yeah. Give but me like some slack, soon, guys. soon, yeah. But yeah, I mean, this yeah, this yeah, is yeah. coming, and uh, it successfully happened on I think two of the three chains, uh, test chains that it's supposed to happen on. Um, there was actually a problem on the first one where the difficulty bomb hit too early, and the beacon chain wasn't ready. Uh, this. Happened on Rothstein, I believe. So, so. The, the nature of getting this difficulty bomb right, I guess, like, you kind of, uh, how, how do you, do you know how it works? It's like you ship a update to the client, to the validators, and then the validators have instructions. Is it an instruction about in this block, the difficulty bomb hits or kind of, how do they get the timing right? Yeah, it's basically that. It's like, um, it's a, it's a I number see. that goes up every block that's mined. Um, I see. Uh, don't quote me on this. Something like the sum of the hashes oh. of all the blocks or something. Oh, I think I see what you're saying. So the idea is it's kind of gradual, but it's basically like slowly becomes harder and harder and harder to put blocks in, and eventually you kind of reach uh, a... Yeah, well, then yeah. At, so it crosses does... the threshold, oh, yeah. and at, that, at yeah. the point where it crosses the threshold, the difficulty goes way up. And the problem on Ropsy that happened is um, a bunch of people, because it was kind of cheap to buy mining power in Ropsy, because it's not profitable to mine fake ETH, they just decide to yeah. buy up a bunch of miners and just burn hard and just like make the merge come early, just uh -huh. like battle tested or something. Who knows what they were doing? But they they <laughs> bought like a bunch of they bought ten x the mining power of the Robson network and just like burn hard for two weeks and it came two weeks early or something. Oh, very yeah. good. So I guess another question, sort of on the logistics of this, uh, and then like when they call it the merge, right? Um, what exactly, I guess, is being merged in? Like, I, I, I had heard, like, Lido and, like, the stake teeth and stuff like that, right? But sort of, it's not like there's a parallel set of transactions and stuff being merged in, right? Or, like, or I, I guess the, 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 calling it the merge, why is it called that? I, it's, I think because the beacon chain is kind of running its own system alongside the two. Yeah. And then, so I guess my question there is that, like, the beacon chain has been operating in parallel, and I guess transactions have been happening on beacon chain, right? So I guess are all the historical transactions in beacon chain getting merged? I don't think. Or I, I don't think kinda... that the beacon chain has transactions. We should have brought somebody on for this oh, because, like, I feel like with the people <laughs> I talk to every day, I feel like such an impulse yeah. talking about this. But uh, yeah, I feel like for uh, like it's going to be an issue for long enough that maybe in a future episode we can just like ask someone. Uh, who's like working on this stuff and chat with them about this? Yeah, no. Yeah, I, I have a good idea yeah. of somebody who'd be good for that, Anthony. So, <laughs> oh, great. I think, uh, we've talked about them before. We literally do it. Like, I feel like this is going to be a topical issue for the next uh, few weeks at least. So, we can even do it like next session. We could get. I think what happened really, just to summarize this issue, is nobody really expected that somebody would hard fork for some reason. And, like, then somebody's like, I'm going to hard fork. And everybody's like, oh, shit, this is actually a problem that we probably should have thought about before. Um, so yeah, yeah, yeah. I think it was... Who is the part? I guess, like, if it's... if Because it, it feels like, like the way we're talking about it, it's turning into a bit of a legitimacy war, but a very multi-party legitimacy war because of the fact that there are so many players in this space now, right? In the sense that sort of you have, like, sort of the power brokers here are the people who control the default client, the validators download, right? Which is, I guess, the Vitalik and Ethereum Foundation. You have like the parties who control real world assets tied to tokens, which is USDC and the stablecoin issuers. You have the parties who one way or another determine like real world sort of 
equivalents like code IP governance on projects, which have a life outside of a chain, um, NFTs and other things, which basically sort of have an external image or something where there's legitimacy to be granted, right? So I guess like the picture we're kind of painting is each of these guys has a play here where they can feasibly contribute, throw their hat into either pot, into like either camp, right? Yeah, yeah, I think the... Yeah, and I guess like here, who is the guy who is trying to hard fork? And I guess like, is there any indication that any large party intends to side with the proof of work guys? Yeah, so his name is Chandler Gao. And I think he's like a Chinese uh, miner or something. And he has like a lot of influence in that Asian mining community. I guess so he like, like, I see. So it's like, it's a like, Representing kind of the miners' interests, right? And uh, yeah, it would like make sense. They have the largest incentive to keep the proof of work version going. Right. Yeah, right. I think that was something like people were not really like thinking about is what are the and I yeah, think yeah. some people it's like oh shoot, a bunch of people bought a bunch of uh, valuable like hardware to mine this stuff, and suddenly their hardware is not worth it. <laughs> yeah. yeah, and the weird yeah. thing is like uh, each hash function is slightly different in which cards and which. Uh, Hardware is good to buy. Right, so they bought like optimized hardware for precisely Ethereum. Which is that, why the yeah. GPU, I mean, partly the price of each tank, but the yeah. GPUs are are going way down in price, faster than the price of ETH. You know? Right, right, so. yeah. yeah. I made a joke at some point, which is that like, it's not so surprising that gamers hate crypto because basically... Probably the one thing that they knew the crypto, like the crypto market for, is whenever crypto booms, GPUs are impossible to buy. So it's all kind of yeah. Sense. Hopefully the merge will fix this problem, right? Hopefully the merge will fix this. But yeah, I mean, because yeah, yeah. you you basically are not profitable mining Bitcoin with a graphics card, but right, ETH right. you are. And this was supposed yeah. to be a decentralization yeah. mechanism, but really all it did is made graphics cards really fucking expensive. So yeah. <laughs> But I guess, like, going back to this, I guess, like, the way I would think about it, if we think about these stakeholders, right, if I were Chandler, right, I guess what I would be looking at right now is who can I um, convince, coerce, or bribe to throw their hat into my camp, mm -hmm. right? Because presumably the plays, you get a high-profile enough, like, party to basically say, proof of work, Chandler ETH is, um, this is going to be the easiest way to say it. I'm going to call it Chandler ETH and Vitalik ETH. So Chandler ETH is the canonical ethereum and we're only going to recognize chandler ETH. like hypothetically if board ape said chandler ETH is real ETH, and only chandler apes are real apes right that would gain them at least the sort of market cap the the value of basically their chain inherits board ape right so i guess like is there any indication that anyone's signing with him or he might be able to get anyone to sign not with him? that i've seen but i think We'll see if there are... If he has enough resources... Yeah, I'm sure he does. It feels like he could at least, like... Like, the, the, the play, it would seem, is at least bribe a couple, like, small projects to do it, right? Because, like, there's nothing... I say bribe, but there's nothing illegal about going to a project and saying, I will pay you to recognize me as canonical. Right, I think... Let's see. And that seems like that would be the play. Sorry, the guys, thing yeah. about crypto that's a little weird is that the Asian community and the like western community are pretty separated um, i have like i completely agree with this the extent to which these are like two separate worlds i just do not understand what's going so on so i there. think it's yeah. possible we could end up with a 
with the Eastern Hemisphere and a Western That hemisphere. would be super interesting. Because, like, there seems enough fragmentation in this kind of... In the two communities already that literally them forking into two separate chains where Asian... Um, like, Asia goes Chandler East and the Western world goes Metallic East is, like, not inconceivable. It would be a natural place to draw the line. What are the Asian kind of projects? Like, the... Top market. I I heard DYDX is like high, like big bigger in Asia than it is in the US, for example. Or is that kind I of think yeah. synthetics? Maybe? Terra know, was the off, biggest yeah. there. Um, but yeah, yeah. Phantom is founded by uh, like a South Korean computer scientist. Um, I see. Yeah, Binance. Who buys? I thought some of these projects. Oh, sorry. Changes, yeah. So. yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, right. Yeah. BUSD, dumb question. BUSD is, oh, but, but BUSD is on Binance chain, right? Yeah. And it's not big on, uh, right. right. Yeah. Or non-existent. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Yeah. So stable coins, I guess, like, um, there is no large Asian, Tether. um, stable coin Tether. on Ethereum. Oh, yeah. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I thought Tether, oh, interesting. Are they, is the team like, does, is the team, does the team seem to be like sort of, connected to the Asian market? I think they're so big that they're connected to everybody, but they're like, the thing is that Asian exchanges use them a lot. Like even Binance has their own stable coin. That makes sense. That makes sense. So uh, whereas USDC is more common in the West. Yeah. 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 That will be interesting to watch, I guess, because sort of like either this whole thing is dead in the water um, and the fork fails. Like the only way it gets any traction, it seems is if like, some of the power, like some of the feudal lords in the system decide to, a, a non-trivial number of feudal lords side with the Chandler um, ETH, I guess. Yeah, so that'll be interesting to kind of watch. In yeah, the yeah, for sure. I guess like, if none, it feels like the miners comparatively have relatively little say in this whole thing, right? Like consider a universe in which every project announces that we are siding with Vitalik ETH. Right. Even if the entirety of the miners wants to support Chandler ETH, I guess like this is like why I guess I disagree with you on the launching of like a whole new chain, right? Like if we have all the projects siding entirely with Vitalik ETH and making strong announcements that sort of the entirety of Chandler ETH versions of our tokens we will not recognize as legitimate and it will not do anything, right? Chandler ETH then gets like the stateliness of having ETH distribution and a bunch of valueless tokens and mining, right? And it just feels to me like sort of, then you're dead in the water. Like if you have a chain with smart contract functionality, but the entire state history of everything people built on this chain is deleted, it feels very hard to jumpstart that and rebuild that. You can fork all you want, but it just feels like sort of network effects are the state of all the interlocking projects and everything, right? So I guess like, it feels to me that I guess uh, that was a long-winded way of saying that in a universe where all the projects side with Vitalik ETH as legitimate, as much as the miners, even if they all the miners say Chandler ETH is legitimate, right? I don't think the value of Chandler ETH can be supported by miners if none of the projects um, support Chandler ETH. I don't know what you think about that. Yeah, I mean, I agree, but as, at the same time, Ethereum Classic is a top 100 coin, right? Sure, of course. Yeah, I, I guess when I say like valueless, I don't mean zero value. I mean just sort of then the proof of work fork will kind of play a role similar to Ethereum Classic of like has a historical kind of role, but 
not much more than that. Yeah, I'm just like trying to envision like what needs to happen for a real fork where sort of the market caps, the, the, the economic value of the two chains are within a factor two or three X of each other. What would need to happen Here's for that to happen? I guess another version of that question is if we have an Ethereum Classic level fork, and I guess something which is like less than a tenth of the activity of Ethereum, do we care that much? Like, does that matter that much for Vitalik? Well, I'm yeah. going to ask that all of the NFT projects stay on ETH Classic or whatever, ETH uh, Chandler. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and Chandler stop ETH. polluting the mempool, please. And stop launching on the DeFi <laughs> chain, please. <laughs> okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see how that works. That would be an interesting outcome. That's yeah. uh, like, I think Yuga Labs. Are they the guys who made uh, the apes? Uh, yeah, apes, they were I like, think, oh, yeah. we might launch a new chain because Ethereum can't support it. Yes, please launch a new chain. Get out. <laughs> okay, stop making the gas <laughs> go through the roof every time you have a mint, please. That's very yes, funny. Yeah. go. Bye. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I think like it's a more interesting history Although a more chaotic one, definitely, if we have a non-trivial fork, right? But I guess, like, it kind of looks to me, based on what we talked about so far, where it looks like the high likelihood outcome is people get a bit mad, Chandler makes some noise, but basically the merge kind of goes through relatively smoothly. Like, the PR of, like, any large project basically going out and saying, like, nope, like, um, saving the world, saving energy is, like, terrible, we're going to burn a bunch of like electricity to do nothing. I guess the PR hit of that is like not great. Right. So I guess like another like direction, I guess to argue is that like maybe the political, I feel like I'm supporting Chandler a bit too much here and I'm doing it largely playing devil's advocate and trying to say interesting things. I hope that this doesn't actually change what happens in the race, but like maybe one way Chandler East could make a push is basically if they like made a serious case for governance flaws or concentration of power issues with the proof of stake model, right? Like, I guess the push would be to market, like, we're the real Ethereum because we're decentralized in a way which granting block making power to whales who hold large amounts of Ethereum is not. And if they emphasize the Lido issues, right? Because it feels kind of like, if you take at face value the argument that we're going to make ETH basically the same thing, but stop burning all the electricity, you can't win that PR fight, right? So you have to like find a spin on it if you're Chandler ETH that sort of casts you in the light of basically like we have legitimacy, right? There is a good reason for society to use Chandler ETH as main ETH. Yeah. I don't know what I haven't followed closely. What have they been? Have they been throwing arguments like that around, or is it mostly minor stuff? Yeah, I haven't been, been following their press too close. I'm sure a lot yeah, of it yeah. is also like in Chinese, but um, yeah. I'll say one thing about the tail risk here, which is that if something goes wrong with the merge, if the network performance isn't uh, great for the first few weeks, yeah. that is really chaotic. Yeah. Oh, right. Because there's more change in Vitality than in Chandlery. So actually, you could have the following situation, which is probably best case for Chandlery. If what happens is that Vitalik ETH merge goes through and the chain basically Solana level functions um, for a few weeks, purely out of sort of necessity, a lot of projects could say, fuck it, we're out until you try and do it again, maybe, but we're out for now. And the merge could fail in the sense of basically. And the thing is, if it goes poorly enough, technically, they might be forced to 
to save face and save control, proactively back out, I guess. And the question is, is it possible for them to proactively back out of merge? And then what happens if yeah. there's, first of all, it's not gonna happen again if that happens, right? What happens to the price of ETH? You're gonna have two versions of ETH. Uh, one of them is gonna sell right. to ETH. They're both gonna be worth 50% of the price of ETH. All of the DeFi yeah. products, you know, like, AI is going to get wiped out if that happens. Everything splits into literally. No, but like it's not yeah. just that everything splits yeah. into. It's that the price of ETH just went down fifty percent due to ne degraded network performance because now right, people right, don't right, know right. which one is valid, so they're hedging. Now each right, 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 right. version is worth fifty percent of the whole thing, right? Because it's yeah, like yeah, yeah. they're like it's yeah. like a coin flip, which one? Yeah. And then the oracles start reporting that it's yeah. worth fifty percent, and then. Yeah, so that's the tail risk. I hope that doesn't happen. It's thinking it's about it gone very well. Yeah, <laughs> thinking about it, this is such a hilarious science fiction scenario, right? Like you almost say, like if you wrote about it in like a science fiction novel or something, right? It's as if like the universe split into two parallel universes, but you could take money in the one universe and kind of send it to yourself in some sense and spend it in the <laughs> other universe, right? And it's kind of like, what is what are dollars worth when you can like send them across universes where there exist two parallel universes in which money is partially but not wholly fungible, right? So kind of the philosophically, it's a very very interesting event. Yeah, it'll be interesting that. to watch the uh, the wrapped USDC classic USDC pool on getting uh, <laughs> It kind of feels yeah. It kind of feels like. The best and yeah you can do like in principle some somebody is going to find a way to bridge shit across the two chains if there is like a long enough time yeah as you say where the two chains cooperate right and then yeah you can send shit over to the other chain right yeah Jesus. should we move on to flash ones um sure yeah let's talk a bit about flash yeah ones. i like to talk about flash ones because i think it's something you can't do in uh tradfi at least not right now so you can do what's called a flash loan, you take out a loan, and then what happens is the smart contract basically checks whether you pay back the loan at the end of the transaction, and if you don't, it reverts the entire transaction. So there's no counterparty risk to giving you the loan, and in some sense, the loan is instantaneous, right? So um, as a lender, you don't lose any capital and you have no counterparty so the question then becomes, why isn't it free to do this, right? If you have no risk and you're not uh, actually lending because it's for zero time, right? Shouldn't the rate on that be zero? Well, in fact, it's not on many protocols. That's something I wondered also, so yeah, okay. why not? I mean, all the economists and finance people watching are going to be like, oh, it's obvious it's just uh, like... Just market power, right? Okay, sure. Except that, like, it's easy. It's like so easy for anybody to add this functionality who holds assets, right? <clears throat> so anybody can do this. In support of the market power claim, um, I have heard that Aave's kind of documentation is a lot easier to use than other people's, and so they might have some advantage there, but. Can I ask just to get a sense? What is the price of a flash? Okay. Right now? Like, so it depends roughly, uh, yeah. on Aave. I think it's about um, 0.09%. Okay. 
Point oh nine. Point oh nine. Um, Got it. Yeah. And then on DYDX, it's free. And on uh, Uniswap, it actually is the the uh, fee tier of the pool. So there's a range there. Oh, I didn't realize. Yeah, this is the interesting thing. What's DYDX's incentive? Like nobody knows that Uniswap does it. So why? When it's like basically people are taking out uh, Flash Loan on Aave, which is more expensive than the lowest fee tiers on Uniswap. So yeah. And the thing is for DYDX, uh, why do they bother offering free flash loans? Like it, I mean, I, there's no risk to them, but I guess like, I guess there's two paired questions which is exactly what you asked, right? Why do they offer it? And why doesn't everyone use it if they well, offer Well, DYDX it? is and a little cheap. bit uh, separated because they have their own like chain. So uh, it's not as easy. Yeah. Oh, that makes um, sense. Yeah. Oh, right, right, right. Yeah. I think. Makes sense. Makes sense. Like yeah. one thing is that Aaves are like a little bit more usable. Okay. Everybody knows about them if you like. They invented the flash loan, so uh, it's kind of yeah. easy to use them. Uh, the other thing is that Aave offers more assets than DYDX. I, I've heard, um, but Uniswap offers more assets than all of them. Has a lower fee tier if you count like the pools that are the low fee tier, right? Uh, and most people don't even know that, <laughs> that they offer flash loans. And I, the the main reason you would want this, like, unless you're trying to attack a protocol, is to arbitrage without capital constraints. Um, which is actually, I think, why DYDX does it for free, because they want their exchange to be efficient. So why not just let anybody come and do arbitrage, right? Um, so here's what I was thinking. Yep. Okay. Why is it that you want to charge a fee, even if the cost to you is zero, and like even in a perfectly competitive market, would it be possible to support a non-zero fee tier for this, right? And let's assume that the guarantee that there's no counterparty risk to you is true as well, because it basically is, it's written in code. Yeah. Okay? Yep. So here's the thing. What happens when I give you a huge flash loan? Is it possible that you can blow up the entire system? Yes, right? And so there's like this kind of distribution of thresholds that I don't know a priori, which possibly includes infinity, which says if you can get this much money in a flash loan, you can blow up the entire system, right? So maybe you uh, want to charge a fee because you don't know where that is. So you have to, uh, you have to hedge your bets a little bit. So it's like the externality created by the flash loan might like kill everyone, including my protocol is something that I'm charging you a risk premium for potentially you're going to kill the whole, pro- like, and this is not like a yeah. theoretical thing. This has happened to major, major protocols, uh, that flash loans have been used to exploit them. I mean, but the thing I feel like is, uh, I think like there's another view, I guess though, which is that. I guess there's no incentive to offer flash loans at all if the protocol is not getting anything from them, right? So it's like they're like, flash loan usage is not the kind of usage that really, I guess, builds a substantial amount of network effects or anything like that, right? It's almost like flash loans are offered in a sense at a, like, either to harvest the fees or as a kind of like charity or something like that. But the thing is that 
sort of, I guess you offer a product for one of two reasons. Either you sell the thing and you make money off it, right? Or you give it away for free, but in a way that the user's usage of that product allows you to sell some other thing to somebody, right? And that's like the ads model, right? Like sort of people using Facebook allows Facebook to sell ads, right? I guess the, the, the bundledness of flash loans as a feature, given how kind of instantaneous the usage is, right? Like that seems to be the problem, right? Which is that you, it, it, it kind of doesn't make sense to offer the product for free because me using flash loans from your product does not allow you to sell either me or someone else um, something. I could be like a vast user of your flash loans product and you cannot derive, capture any of that value. But in a perfectly competitive world, yeah, it shouldn't be zero, but it should be drawn No, I agree. Down. The marginal cost has, is I mean, zero. Exactly. Yeah, it's yeah. like the same, you know? Yeah, yeah, so, yeah. No, I agree. I feel like, but I feel like the theory there is that it should go to zero, but very slowly, right? In the sense that basically it, like, it'll go to zero because eventually once the development cost of writing these things is low enough, any small protocol is going to add flash loan functionality. And it's simple enough in principle that that will mm -hmm. add competition, right? If you see what I'm saying. I guess what I'm saying is that like, maybe it's just that we haven't gone there yet. Cause like the basically zero profits from adding flash loan functionality don't yeah, justify this is the development boring, costs, right? For sure. So if you see the marginal cost is paying the dev. <laughs> but yeah, I the like the exciting theory. <laughs> yeah. that I, I feel like you I want to like catch it, yeah. not blowing up the entire system. We can, <laughs> yeah, we can see what happens. I think what what you point out, I think, is exactly like there's a world in which like we should observe. I mean, Uniswap's doing it, so I think it like sort of matches this hypothesis. Anyone who has a pool of money should offer flash loan functionality. It's like a few extra bits. It's like actually analogous slightly to stock lending in TradFi, where basically anyone who like has a large pile of stocks can juice their returns slightly by uh, offering stock lending, right? And the thing is like flash loans is literally asset lending, but like even less, like literally zero risk. Um, so even more similar to stock lending. So I think like what we seem to agree on is that like everything will naturally trend in this Direction, although I think what the equilibrium fee would be. Here's the thing: what if you yeah. think like this distribution of potential thresholds where everything blows up is there? Okay. The what matters is the sum of all of the flash loans that are offered. Okay, so as people are driving it. Yeah, like, yeah. But the thing is, there's a but the thing is, there's a prisoner's dilemma problem, right? Like I think that sort of we would have to collude to all agree on prices which reflect the actual risk, right? And I have an incentive to undercut you because, like, if somebody blows up the system, right, like, I still, like, sort of, I contribute a bit to blowing everyone up, but I also make a bit more money, right? So I think, like, the fees are actually inefficiently high. This is a systemic risk problem, right? Like, sort of, the amount of liquidity easily available to people to blow systems up, right, is too high in competitive equilibrium because I don't internalize the blow up risk it's on everyone else. No. So I agree with you in a sense. Like if everybody market, has has the same on, yeah. prior on the risk, okay, that is not true, right? The the, the unraveling only happens if there's some no. I, my intuition to, the prior. It's not so much unraveling. I think it's internalization. Let me work a simple example, right? Suppose that um, if we offer flash loans, right, above a certain size, right, then there's a like ten percent chance of the system blowing up. And the system blow up costs us ten ten dollars each, right? Like I'm going to set a price which reflects the fact that with ten percent probability I lose ten dollars, right? So I'm going to price a, set a price of one dollar for a flash loan, right? 
what's the socially efficient price of a flashlight? The socially efficient price reflects the fact that with a 10% probability, each of us lose $10. So $2 is blown up, right? So I think there's a simple internalization problem where my pricing doesn't reflect the fact that by changing my price, I increase your probability of blowing up. So my intuition points to there as being a wedge here where basically we don't, it's not unraveling so much as just a externality problem that's top right here. I think, so so there's like, Zero, which is where it would exist yeah. if there was no externality and perfect competition. And yeah. then there's like where it's at now. Which... Exactly. Slight internalization. I'm, I'm agreeing with you and saying we really should be here. We're much too low flash loan yeah. price relative to social optimum. I think this is actually quite interesting. It's related to basically the um, like systemic risk. And it's the old co- problem of lenders lend too much because they don't internalize the fact that when their loans right. blow up, everyone right. else blows up too. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. All right. Um, yeah, I guess we're about at time. Sorry, Max, you want to call it for today here? Yeah. All right. So thanks, everyone, for tuning in. Um, yeah, so we'll be doing this around every two weeks um, from now on. So um, thanks a lot for um, listening. And then we'll be back.